Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello once more and welcome back to another episode of Signals to Danger. This is a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. Because of that, sometimes the content that we discuss is distressing, and the subject that we cover, well that means that loss of life and injury are a feature of most episodes, but not today. And we'll get into that in a few minutes. My name is Dan. I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'm going to be the one taking you through this podcast. To shed some light on my cryptic announcement last time in the introduction about a bit of a collaboration, well, if you haven't picked it up by now, I made a surprise appearance on another podcast, Round All Round We Go. Last week, Emily and Paul covered a station that I've discussed previously, Harrow and Wheelston, and I joined them to talk about the accident there and its aftermath. If you haven't heard their podcast yet, I really would recommend a listen and... It's not just a plug for me, not just to that episode, but to all of the other ones that they have up already. It's a really good podcast, and they've actually inspired me to take another trip to the London Transport Network for today's episode. Since last time we were here and spoke, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Mike and Colin for your Patreon pledges and for choosing to support the podcast in that way. And if you'd like to find out more yourself about how to do that, please get yourself over to signalstodanger.com and click on support. To those live stream tier supporters, Hello and uh, welcome to today's recording session and to everyone else who's a Patreon supporter watching the recording of the live stream, hi to you as well. Anyway, with that all out of the way, it is just time for me to start cracking on with episode six. The length of a carriage was all that separated two trains that minutes earlier had been heading towards each other. 23 metres and seconds away from a head-on collision, a near miss that should never have taken place. The year is 2020, and the place is Chalfont and Latimer. Carriages are crushed, one on top of another. Investigators at the scene searched through the wreckage for the injured. A point's failure 
This week's episode is about a time a little more recently than some of our previous ones, and it's actually the second time I've covered a lack of an accident. So, I'm afraid if you're only here for the mangled wreckage, then you might be a little bit disappointed. But like when I covered the 2015 near miss at Wooten Bassett with the steam loco Tangmere back in the middle of season one, this is a story of near misses and mistakes which is worth telling. Accidents are, well, in recent times, they're quite rare. There have actually been a few of note, certainly Carmont back in 2020, Fisherton Tunnel last year and a buffer stop collision at Enfield Town. They all come to mind when I think about this. But when we get started with today's episode, I think I should really briefly just mention the developments that are being undertaken with another accident that took place last year, because it's fairly current, it's in the news, it's interesting and relevant. On the 13th of March, a Mersey rail train collided with buffers at Kirkby Station and derailed quite dramatically, if anyone's seen the CCTV footage of it, which was definitely not released without uh, permission um, the night of the accident. Anyway, nobody was killed or seriously injured, but the station and the train took some substantial damage. In the past, when we've talked about accidents, I've talked about how there's normally multiple investigations taking place at the same time. So we know that following an accident, an REIB investigation will take place, which defines the causes of the accident, but doesn't necessarily attribute blame. It's it's not what they're there for. They're there to understand why it happened. And for Kirkby, that investigation is still taking place, along with another 13 investigations which are live with the REIB right now. But there are other investigations that often take place concurrently, such as a British Transport Police investigation or other bodies might be involved. Now, while the RAIB will not apportion guilt or prosecute people, that's not to say that people who are negligent in causing these accidents go unpunished. In terms of taking people to task for this, it's the other investigations which drive that. A prime example is what has happened regarding Kirkby. Back last year, the RAIB had said in their preliminary report that the train had approached the buffers at about 42 miles an hour before an emergency brake application but a really key piece of information dropped in the media a week or so later. The driver of the train was arrested. This must have meant that the police investigation taking place alongside the RAIB had turned up something which pointed at blame. And just this week, we received a little more information on this front. 59-year-old Philip Hollis, the driver of the train which derailed at Kirkby, has now been charged with endangering the safety of people on the railway and will appear in Magistrates Court early in February. For a charge to be brought, there must be something, well, there surely must be something, which the police have found, which CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, believes could lead to a conviction. I'll wait to see what the RAIB report says in its release, but considering the offence can mean some prison time, I can't imagine they've found something trivial. In any case, it's certainly one to follow in the coming weeks and months, There are rumours, if you do a bit of digging online, you might find opinions and thoughts of what might have been happening, but I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to talk about rumours. I'm going to wait for the report. Personally, that's, that's what I do. That's the crux of the whole podcast. But it might be an accident I cover relatively quickly following the release of the report, depending on how interesting it is. This week's episode, dragging myself back again, as I said earlier, covers a near miss, one which need not have happened and one that took place because of a number of factors. However, this incident 
did not take place on Merseyside. Nope. For this accident, we need to travel far further south to the very outskirts of the capital, Chalfont and Latimer Station. I've just referred to Chalfont and Latimer as being on the very outskirts of the capital, and I think that's probably a pretty fair way of describing it. It's certainly about as far as the London transport zones go, so if you're familiar with that, Chalfont can be found on the Metropolitan Line, out to the west of the city in Zone 8. In fact, there are only two stations that are further out on the Metropolitan Line, Amersham and Chesham, which are on, well, Chesham's on a small branch which splits off just after Chalfont. All three stations are actually located in Buckinghamshire instead of London proper and together. Well, they represent the very top left of the tube map. So if you're struggling to find it, just look in the very, very top left. The original underground line, the Met, now takes people from Bucks into the heart of the city, calling at some of the major stations on the route, King's Cross, Euston, Liverpool Street, playing an important role in the running of the London Underground Network on, on a whole on its day-to-day basis. There is a difference between most of the underground when compared to railways elsewhere in the country. Most lines are used by a mix of services, different companies, different types of trains. If you look at Manchester Piccadilly, for example, you have regional services from Northern, inter-regional from Transpennine and Transport for Wales, and high-speed intercity services from Cross Country and Avanti West Coast, all using the same lines in and out of the station, intermingling and crossing over each other without issue. The London Underground is a bit different to this. It's a a type of rapid transport network, a a network that operates on its own lines separate from the UK rail network. Sometimes lines are kept separate in this way because of the gauge of the tracks are different. If you look at the the Glasgow Underground, that's a, a narrow gauge underground. It's not the same size as the main line. But the Underground in in London is a standard gauge railway. It still operates as an isolated system for the most part due to the fact that it is an underground railway. The lines run through tunnels which place a, well, it'd be an understatement to say it places a restriction on the size of trains that can travel through the lines. Even the deep level lines such as the Victoria and Piccadilly need to use even smaller trains to fit into the compact deep level tunnels under the city and you're not about to see a pendolino trundle through the platforms at Green Park. So the underground is an entirely separate network from the National Rail Network, except for, in my great tradition of immediately contradicting something I've said, where it isn't. And I have been a little black and white with that initial description. Yes, it's its own network, but there are areas around the fringes where the open-air sections of the line are shared with National Rail. The fact that the underground uses standard gauge lines means this is an option and as more and more railways sprung up around the capital and rail grew in general back in the day, the the late 19th century, um, having routes through the suburban sprawl that you could share with another service was probably quite helpful. With that principle in mind, there is a little bit of line sharing around north-west London. 
the back half of the 19th century, the Metropolitan Line was extended as far as Amersham in London's suburban sprawl as, as it grew and grew and grew. It was actually extended a bit further than that, but we'll, we'll say Amersham for today's purposes. Metroland was a concept in full swing, and in September of 1892, the extension from Chalfont to Amersham was completed. The line eventually continued as far as Verney Junction, but what happened next was the important part and what I'm driving at here. The Manchester, Sheffield and Lincolnshire Railway extended its lines from the north and the Midlands through to London's Marlebone Station, sharing the tracks with the Metropolitan Railway for a portion of the journey. This London extension meant that in 1897 the MS&LR changed its name to the much more recognisable Great Central Railway, and another mainline route into the capital was born from the rest of the country. Anyway, while this is all very much part of the history of the line, I feel like I should stick in a fairly sizable disclaimer and say that I have never professed to be an expert on the underground, that there is a rich and detailed history, <laughs> centuries of of information, and there are people out there who can teach you about the underground far, far better than I can. Inserting a plug here for the podcast Round All Round We Go, and a recommendation to go and watch Jeff Marshall's back catalogue on YouTube, just to name two really valid sources of better London Underground information than I can provide, but I will muddle through for today. The important pieces of info that you need to take away from all of this is that the Met eventually came to a point where it only ran trains as far as Amersham and on the small branch line to Chesham, and that nowadays those two stations are the second and first most distant stations from central London on the Underground. The line running through all of these stations belongs to London Underground Limited, or LUL, and Metropolitan Line trains use it every day. Doesn't mean that they are the only people to use it, however. Just under a mile and a half north of Amersham, London Underground Limited's infrastructure turns into network rail infrastructure. Some of the mainline railway services between the town of Aylesbury and Marlebone still use the route via Chalfont and Latimer Station, travelling on the LUL lines mixed in with the underground trains. They travel on this line as far as Harrow-on-the-Hill, there they slot back onto heavy rail lines. These mainline trains that run down the Metropolitan line for this section are currently operated by Chiltern Railways, using diesel multiple units with some slight additions of equipment to allow them to run on the LUL infrastructure and train crew who are trained up on the additional pieces of information they need to know. And when we join our story for this episode, we start the workday with a Chilton driver on the 21st of June, 2020. A little before 3pm, one of Chiltern Railway's drivers booked onto duty at London's Marlebone Station for a normal, everyday turn of duty. He'd been driving trains with the company since 2002 when he qualified and on the 21st he'd booked on with a controller at the station, got his bits and bobs in order and then made his way up to the platforms for the first train of the day. He then drove the 1520 service from Marlebone all the way through to Oxford, 
The 50-mile journey complete, he then proceeded to bring another service back into the capital, all in a day's work, arriving back into London at 28 minutes past six in the evening. After a short break, known as a PNB, a personal needs break, the driver continued on with his day. His next train would bring him out to Buckinghamshire County town of Aylesbury. He arrived on time at 17 minutes past eight, where he was due another break, slightly longer than the last one, a rest and refreshment break, to allow him time to grab a bite if he wanted to and a brew and to use the facilities before his next train. The 21.13 from Aylesbury Vale Parkway back to Marlborough via the Metropolitan Line through Amersham and Chalfond. The train was to be composed of two Class 165 two-coach diesel multiple units, coupled together with Unit 165015 leading and 006 trailing, because I know that there's some of you out there who love to know a number. The 165s, well, they've got a maximum permitted speed of 75 mile an hour, were built in the very early 90s for BR, British Rail. The Chiltern Railways fleet was refurbished between 2003 and 2005 to sort of bring them up to standard for the time, and... As I said earlier, there were a few modifications that had been made to allow trains to run and equipment fitted to this fleet at the time to uh, to include a tripcock system, which in conjunction with the line-side equipment, that would stop a train if it passed a signal displaying a red stop aspect on LUL lines. But we will get into that later. One minute late at 14 minutes past 9pm, the train departed from Aylesbury back southbound towards the capital. Green signals and an uneventful journey brought him and his passengers to Amersham's Platform 3, still one minute late, at around 20 to 10 on a summer's evening. Still light, but fading quickly. This, however, is the point that the journey starts to go a bit... sour. If we fly now across to Chalfont and Latimer Station, a second train was doing its thing, just approaching the northbound platform, Platform 1. This was a Metropolitan Line train composed of an 8-carriage S-stock train, number 403, introduced in 2010 to help improve the service quality on the lines. And Of course, everyone prides himself on trying to be on time, but this train, which was booked ahead all the way through to Chesham, down the branch, was six minutes late as it arrived into the station. Signalling in this area was not controlled by network rail signallers, it was controlled by London Underground Limited, LUL, and the signaller, well I should say service operator, as that's the job title in these circumstances and that's how he's referred to in the report, he was located at Amersham Signal Cabin. He had a decision to make, because as the Metline train needed to cross from the northbound line and over the southbound line where the Chilton service would be travelling to get to the Chesham branch. Because of this, one train would need to be given priority over the other and the operator had to decide which. As the two trains had approached this section, he had made that decision. He decided that the overall system delay was probably more important than these two specific trains, and that would be minimised if the northbound Chesham train was given priority over the Chilton Railway service. So he knew this, he set the route for the Chesham branch, and all the other signals in the area reflected this as the two trains approached. The Metline train was sat in Platform 1 and ready to depart, with the signal at the end of the platform, Juliet Tango 80, showing a green proceed aspect. All systems go, crack on. As soon as the station duties were complete, passengers boarded, alighted, the driver, closed the doors, started to draw away. 
Suddenly, before the train had been able to really leave the platform, that signal turned to red. This shouldn't happen. Just to, to let you know, this shouldn't happen. As a driver approaching a signal, a normal signal cycle should only ever really be seen to get less restrictive as signals in advance of the one you're stood at clear. So a driver sat at a red signal could sit and watch it go to a single yellow, then a double yellow, and then a green as the blocks ahead of him cleared. What you should never see is the signal in front of you change to a more restrictive aspect. You should certainly never see a green signal ahead of you suddenly turn red. We call that a signal being put back in front of you. Uh, And I have spoken to train drivers who've been doing around about a ton and seeing that happen. I've I've spoken to people who were just proceeding as normal and all of a sudden, because of uh, a power blip or something like that, a signal will revert. And it's probably fair to say that's hearty and mouth squeaky bum time because you do not know why that has happened. Well, Luckily, the Metline train on this occasion was not doing a very high rate of speed. It only just set off, moved a small distance in the platform towards the signal and did exactly the right thing, stopped the train immediately, coming to the stand um, a metre or so before the end of the platform, close to the signal, but not past it. The reason the signal had been thrown back became clear a minute or so later. In the opposite direction, the operator could see a Chilton train heading towards the capital. At around 25 mile an hour, it bore down on the station at Chalfond until it reached the crossovers that led from the southbound line it was travelling on to the northbound line the S-stock train sat upon. The train swung to the right as the front bogey reached the crossing. These crossovers were only meant to be taken at 15 mile an hour, so the 25 mile an hour speed meant there was a notable lurch as the bogies were diverted towards the underground train. This took place as the trains were only about 80 metres apart. The operator of the tube train was probably horrified as he saw the other turn towards him, and I can sympathise. Time most likely moved in slow motion as the trains approached. Passengers on both, but with the operator of the underground stock powerless to stop those diesel units approaching him. Finally, it came to a stand. 23 metres separated the two trains. No collisions, no injuries. A lot of scared people involved. 23 metres, the length of one carriage of the Class 165s operating the Chilton train. A disaster was narrowly averted, but the potential was there for something far, far worse. If the Chilton train had been travelling slightly faster or braked slightly later, those 23 metres, they'd have been eaten up very quickly. And that only takes into account the movements of the mainline train, Let's not forget that the underground train had a proceed aspect. If it had moved a few metres further along the platform when that signal went back to red, the operator wouldn't have seen it. train would have proceeded. And it would have almost guaranteed that a collision would take place. It's clear to look at this event that a serious accident was very, very close. At the time of the event, if there'd been coming together, it would have been the first significant collision between two moving passenger trains since Labrook Grove. This is the reason that the Nemus was so important, so significant, and the reason that it received a full RAIB investigation. And in case you are wondering, Fisherton Tunnel last year, that is the 
the accident now that has the the sort of title of the first significant coming together of two moving passenger trains since 1999. The things that happened here should clearly not have happened. But now it's time for us to try and understand what went wrong. Once the two trains at Chalfont had come to a stand and it was clear that an accident had been avoided, there were things that needed to take place. This had been what we'd probably call a serious operational irregularity. Neither of these trains were going anywhere, and an investigation would need to take place. It was clear to everyone involved that this was serious and it was treated as such. Removing passengers from the trains was was very easy in one case and far harder in the other. The passengers on the underground train, well, they simply walked off the train and left the platform in the usual fashion, sent on their way with alternative transport. But in the case of the Chilton set, it was um, a little bit more complex. They weren't stopped alongside a platform, and so those passengers needed to be evacuated on the ballast, which required more staff on site, more management, more people to make sure they could safely walk alongside the line. And it meant that they actually didn't start being evacuated until 10 past 11 at night nearly an hour and a half after all of this took place. Beyond, well, the business of asking and answering questions had begun. And now, how best to understand, well, to start understanding that, by looking at what went on in the cab of the other train. Accounts of drivers involved in accidents are always crucial pieces of evidence, and while the underground driver couldn't really offer an awful lot of detail in terms of useful information beyond the signal reversion, the Chilton driver held the keys to this accident. The initial account of the Chilton service's journey through the area answered some questions, but raised, well it raised some others as well, would be fair to say. The account of the driver was as follows. He brought the train out of Amersham, passing the signal at the end of the platform, Juliet Whiskey 2, travelling at around about 13 miles an hour. But shortly afterwards, he took full power, accelerating the train until it reached 55 miles an hour about a minute later. The driver noted nothing untoward as he passed the next signal down the line, Juliet Whiskey 5. Around three seconds after he passed signal Juliet Whiskey 5, the driver received an audible alert from the, the DVD. I love an acronym, the Driver's Vigilance Device. The DVD is designed to alert a driver if no control input's been made for 60 seconds. It's designed to make sure that trains aren't being driven around by people who've had a, a medical episode or a lack of concentration. It just says, you've not done anything for a minute, are you, are you all right? 
driver has to acknowledge it in a timely manner or similar to other safety systems, it will just bring the train to a stand. So the driver acknowledged the warning from the DVD and the train continued. 11 seconds later, the driver looked down at his speedometer and noticed that it now read 62 miles an hour. This was actually slightly above the maximum permitted speed of 60 miles an hour for this section of line, so the train was speeding a little bit. But the driver reacted appropriately to realising this, he shut off power and he made a gentle brake application to bring the speed of the train back down below 60. For the next 20 seconds, the train coasted down the line with a slight application of the brakes to keep the speed in check. At that point, though, there was something which happened that was out of the ordinary. Around about the point, the train passed by another signal, Juliet Tango 6, the brakes suddenly applied in emergency. Over the next 300 metres, the train slowed to a stop, quite quickly. Um, The driver was then faced with a decision. What do I do now? He believed, as he told investigators, that the application of the brakes had been spurious which is the word that's used throughout the report and in a lot of the media bits afterwards. But he believed that the application had been spurious. A mistake, not linked to an actual reason for the application. It was clear to him that the system which had caused the application was the tripcock. To take a little brief aside, as I always do, tripcocks are a train stop mechanism and they work like this. The system comprises of two basic components. One is the trip arm mechanism, mounted on the ground next to the rail, which essentially has a spring-loaded arm connected to a motor or a pneumatic cylinder. And the other is the train-mounted trip cock, which is connected either electronically or directly to the braking system. When a, a dangerous condition exists, such as a signal at danger, the trip arm is raised next to the line, and if a train passes it, the trip cock on the train will be pushed by the trip arm, applying the brakes, bringing the train to a stand. So this means that if a tripcock system brought your train to a stand as you were driving down the line, you'd probably want to make sure there wasn't a valid reason for that. The driver was sure, as I've just mentioned, that the activation of the tripcock was spurious. A false warning, an erroneous activation. He hadn't noted any adverse signal aspects on the approach. He couldn't see why it would have stopped him in that way. So the driver reset the equipment and restarted his train. Was this the right thing to do? Uh, No, in a word, no. Tripcocks were only used on the LUL infrastructure. They weren't used on the national rail network that Chilton operated on. And there were specific rules about what you needed to do if you received a tripcock activation. LUL and Chilton Railways expected the driver of any train stopped by a tripcock to obtain authority from the LUL service operator, the signaller, before restarting their train. But the uh, the Chilton Railway driver here stated to investigators that he believed permission to restart the train was not needed because he believed the tripcock activation to be false and not caused by the train doing something like passing a signal at danger. If it does help, however, he stated that he intended to report the unscheduled stopping of the train when he arrived at Chalfont and Latimer Station, which was his next stop, because it may have delayed the underground train, which at that time he believed was waiting for him to pass. So he reset the kit, and five seconds after the train came to a halt, it was all cleared. He took power again and got the speed up to 27 miles an hour as he approached Chalfont Station. The driver then shut off power and allowed the train to coast for about 20 seconds before making a light brake application. 
which continued as the train passed over the junction towards the Chesham branch, around nine seconds later. He released the train's brakes, but then almost immediately slapped the emergency brake. He felt a kick as the train passed through the set of points which led towards Platform 1. He felt the train lurch, and he realised he was going that way. And then we all know what came next. At the time of the accident, it was a a mystery to the driver as to what had gone wrong. Like I said, he couldn't recall any adverse signal aspects, and in the past we'd probably just need to take his word for it that he believed that. But things change, and new technology is always coming onto the scene. So it's time for a new acronym, because you know we love them. FFCCTV, forward-facing close-circuit television. This is a camera which records footage from the point of view of the train driver. In the event of an incident, the footage can be downloaded and viewed to clarify what actually took place. No more ambiguity about, was the signal that colour? Did that person start crossing before this? All the things that would just have to rely on what the driver sees, now there's a camera seeing it as well on the vast majority of service trains. And this is where the story gets interesting. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Let's move into this section of the podcast with a very clear memory of the fact that the Chilton driver didn't recall seeing any adverse signal aspects. No cautions, no stop signals. Between Amersham Station and Chalfont and Latimer, there are five pieces of signalling equipment, all of which are going to be visible on those forward-facing cameras. Juliet Whiskey 2, at the end of the platform at Amersham Station, a signal that we'd probably call a platform starter as it controls a train leaving a station. 800 metres down the line, another piece of kit, a fog repeater, 
The repeater is meant to give an early indication of the aspect for the next proper signal, which is about 125 metres further down the line, Juliet Whiskey 5. If Juliet Whiskey 5 was showing a green or a yellow aspect, the fog repeater would show a white aspect. If the signal that was associated with it was at red, then the repeater would show a yellow aspect. It's, it's almost like just an extra little signal. It's meant to give you that bit more visibility in fog. If you travelled down the line another 800 metres from Juliet Whiskey 5, you'd find another fog repeater, and then 123 metres past it, the signal where the Chiltern Trains brakes applied, Juliet Tango 6. So on review of the forward-facing footage, what did the investigators find? Was it clear signals all the way? Well, Juliet Whiskey 2 on the platform ramp at Amersham as a bad start was not showing a proceed aspect. It was showing a double yellow for preliminary caution. Not that the driver of the train recalled that being the case, but the camera shows it clear as day. There's a screenshot of it in the report. And I'm sure at this point there are listeners out there doing the maths and working out exactly what the next few signals will have shown. But let's just roll through the record. The fog indicator for Juliet Whiskey 5, well, that showed a white light, meaning that the signal would either be green or yellow, and sure enough, Juliet Whiskey 5 showed a single yellow light. This warned any driver that the next signal down the line would be red, at danger. The recording shows that um, Juliet Whiskey 5 and its fog repeater were both visible to the driver for around 25 seconds on the approach, and the driver did not notice the restrictive aspect. As he told investigators, he believed he was travelling on clear signals. And as everyone is probably expecting by now, the fog repeater for Juliet Tango 6 was showing a yellow aspect and Juliet Tango 6 a red. The cause of the near miss was probably quite simple, really. The train passed a signal at danger. Adding to this fact that the Tripcock system, a safety system that was brought in to bring the train to a stop before an accident could happen, worked as it was designed to do. But then for one reason or another, the driver couldn't recall seeing the adverse signals and then disobeyed the rules to start running again without checking. Dumb luck and fortunate timing. Probably the only reasons the accident was actually avoided. In order to try and make sense of why the driver did what he did, investigators looked into him, as you'd expect, and his history in the role. Roles on the railway which have a safety responsibility often carry a safety record. It's passed between companies if you change and it's always retained and it gives a record of any safety problems or accidents or incidents that you might have been involved in. And Sometimes it's called a safety of the line record. Investigators will generally check a driver's safety record regardless of the circumstances surrounding the event because it's good practice to do so. But in this situation where there was well, clearly an enormous disconnect between what happened and the driver's understanding, well, I'd say it was definitely worth checking. In the time since he qualified in 2002, the driver that was involved in the incident at Chalfont and Latimer had a number of safety-related incidents. 15 of them, to be fair. 
In 2002, we overran a station, stopping too slowly to get the doors accommodated in the platforms, and then in 2003, had another overrun. A failed call where he completely missed the station he was meant to stop at, and a wrong side door release. This one is very serious. If you imagine you're pulling into a station where the platform's on the left, and then the doors on the right release, making it so a passenger who wasn't concentrating could autopilot open the door and step out, falling onto a live railway line. His next three years were clear, but in 2007 he had a further three incidents. Another other run, and twice where the Train Protection and Warning System, TPWS, which we've covered a few times in the past, intervened with his driving, making a brake demand, because he was travelling too fast for whatever the situation was at the time, whether he was approaching a signal or a junction. 2011, that saw another two TPWS interventions and 2012, well that brought another fail to call. And to top it off, in 2014, another station overrun. I think it would be fair to say that it's not an unblemished record at this point, but on the 23rd of February 2015, the driver had a further two incidents. He overran High Wycombe Station, and at Marlborough Station, he reset a safety system and proceeded without authority. Just like the Tripcock situation. Ringing any bells? Chilton didn't do nothing to try and help and rectify the issues with the safety record of the driver, and to their credit, they also didn't wash their hands of him because of the errors. No, they... They undertook a range of activities to coach, support and assist him and try and make him better. By the time the driver had had his 10th incident in 2012, a safety review panel was convened. As a result, the driver was given a development plan which was supposed to help him with concentration and also to deal with some of the issues outside of work that were causing distraction. This two-year development plan seemed to work as he didn't have any issues within that time. Like I said earlier, the driver's next incident was in 2014. His train overran a station stop at Warwick Parkway. Actions that were taken in response to that included pairing the driver with an instructor for five days, a practical driving assessment by a driver manager, monthly face-to-face meetings with his manager, and advising the driver to use risk-triggered commentary driving. We'll have another aside, because you know I love them. Risk-triggered commentary It is a fantastic technique, which means that you will commentate on your own activity when there are things you need to be aware of. So a really simple example of that would be driving a train and seeing a yellow signal. Instead of just seeing a yellow signal and thinking, yellow signal, you say out loud, yellow signal, next one will be red, get ready to stop. Um, the Japanese do something very similar. If you ever watch videos of the um, station working and things like that, Japan, you'll see them point at things. So they will point at the clock to say it's time to go. They will point at the signal to say the signal is clear. And it's their way of, that is a risk, commentate on it. Then you know you've checked it. Back in the day, about four years ago, um, I used to do a little bit of dispatching trains to help out. And I always looked at each door and said to myself, door, when I confirmed it was closed. And I said, light, when I saw the body side light indicator was extinguished. So looking down the side of a train, I'd be stood there with a, a dispatch baton in my hand. I'd go, door, 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 light, 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 light. And it seems a bit odd to an observer to see a strange man stood on a platform going, door, 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 light, light, light. But I also, I always knew that the doors were closed and locked and it worked for me. And I didn't mess up. I didn't create a dangerous situation because I was using 
a form of risk-triggered commentary. So there were measures. There was help being provided to try and get this guy where he needed to be in terms of a standard. Apart from those measures, Chilton also took a few other steps to help the driver keep his incidents from reoccurring. The driver took part in psychological assessments with a specialist organisation to identify social, cognitive and personal issues that may have contributed to the incidents and to identify strategies that the driver could use to reduce the likelihood of similar events in the future. Despite this intervention, we know that he was involved in a further incident on the 23rd of February 2015 when his train overran a station stop at High Wycombe. A safety review panel with senior managers from the company and a trade union representative was convened again and this time it was to decide whether he could continue driving with supportive actions or whether he should just be removed from driving duties altogether. The panel noted that the driver was dealing with personal issues in his life and that he was identifying methods to help use his concentration. Eventually, a a bit of a compromise was, was reached and it was eventually decided that he would be restricted to driving trains at Wembley Depot and empty trains without passengers on between there and Marlborough Station for three years as an initial period. The restriction was intended to manage his concentration issues to help reduce the amount of decisions that he could have to make while driving at high speeds and during longer periods of sustained concentration. This time period went fine. No issues, no more safety concerns, but at the end of the period, the driver expressed some concerns about returning to the main line because he was understandably pretty concerned that involvement in another incident could end his career. I imagine keen to avoid that. He was promised additional training and support, but over the next few months, four separate managers were involved in that support and retraining process. One retired, one was doing a bit too much work. It goes through it all in the report, but basically he didn't have the right level of consistency. Um, And nonetheless, he didn't have any instance on his return. But there might be some of you doing maths again and probably notice that I've only actually listed 13 incidents and not the 15 I initially described. That's because in early 2020, he was involved in two incidents. In the first one, on the 20th of January, he didn't cancel an AWS warning within the allotted time period of two to three seconds, so the train's brakes applied. And on the 17th of February, he stopped his train at a station that he was never booked to stop at, and that's what's known as an out-of-course stop. Following these safety incidents, a... uh, air quotes, meaningful conversation was had with the driver, but nothing of any concern was raised and the driver manager dealing with him at that point, he decided it wasn't necessary to place the driver on a development plan or really to take any other action. It's worth mentioning here that this relatively new manager didn't seem to have a full grasp of the driver's safety history, despite the fact it was available to him, but there might be a reason behind that. At the Marlborough Depot, there were supposed to be three managers for the allotment of drivers, but there was two. This means that both drivers had both managers, sorry, had forty-three drivers to manage each. Possibly a little bit stretched, if you ask me. I still don't believe that their decision to take no further action was the right one, though, because this driver had a sixteenth safety of the line incident, and. This one was a serious one, which you know because we're discussing it today.
We know by now that the REIB likes to nail down a root cause for the incident. It's not enough to say that the driver just kept having safety incidents and not really enough to understand that Chilton didn't effectively manage the safety risk, though this was definitely an outcome of the investigation, with one of the probable underlying factors identified literally as being Chilton Railway's driver management process did not effectively manage safety risk related to the driver. It is probable that this is a factor underlying the incident and possible that this was the consequence of an insufficient number of driver managers and their high workload. Chilton didn't get off scot-free. That is one underlying factor singled out, though, and the immediate cause by this point for the accident was no mystery. It was noted in the report being, The driver reset the tripcock on the train following a spad at signal Juliet Tango 6 and moved forwards towards Chalfont Chalfont and Latimer without obtaining permission to continue. Very clear cut, supported by witness evidence, data recorders and the forward-facing CCTV. And even the history of safety failures in isolation, well, that's not enough as a causal factor to point at and say, well, he kept making mistakes because he was a driver who messed up frequently. And that's not technical enough at all. It's it's part of the narrative, but it isn't the reason. More detail required. The REIB report considered, following the SPAD, the driver reset the tripcock equipment and then restarted the train without obtaining permission as another causal factor and, as such, they investigated the reason why the driver did so. We know that he assumed the tripcock activation was spurious, so now we need to understand why he thought that and what the RAIB discovered actually does make sense. They discovered that it was possible that the driver was influenced by a lack of clarity about how tripcock activations are dealt with on the national rail network routes which Chiltern Railways operates over. And again, bear in mind there's this one route that Chiltern runs that is on the London Underground Limited tracks. There's this one route that has these tripcocks and this different sort of way of signalling slightly. Tripcocks on Chiltern's route are only present on the LUL line. There are no signals fitted with train stops on the national rail networks that Chilton uses. So all tripcock activations, every single one that they have, which doesn't take place on the Metropolitan line, is spurious. They're normally caused by the tripcock striking a bit of high ballast or an animal or some other objects which would have had the same effect as an actual train stop striking the tripcock. And this happened relatively frequently. It wasn't unheard of for a spurious tripcock activation. The data that Chilton provided showed that more than 100 such events are reported annually. Witness evidence suggests that there's also a few that aren't reported. Chilton doesn't include, though, in its operating instructions what should be done in the event of a tripcock brake application on the National Rail Network, but stated that it would expect drivers to apply the rule for abnormal brake applications as stated in the rulebook. In this context, though, the driver stated that not seeking authority to restart the train wasn't an attempt to cover up the incident and that he would not have continued towards the junction if he knew he had passed a signal at danger, which, I'll be honest with you, I think everyone is probably inclined to believe I wouldn't intentionally crash my train. Um, he, there's there's very big difference between a uh, mistake and malicious intentions. It's no one suggesting that was something that was taking place here. So one causal factor was explained why he probably assumed it was spurious, but there was a meteor one that just remained. 
the real underlying question which we needed to answer here is, with such a history of safety issues, is there an underlying cause which needed identifying? Yes, we know this driver had issues making errors, but is there a reason why? Why was this one particular driver having such a bad time driving safely? And it comes down to a few factors. Firstly, it was clear that the driver had lost operational focus. This was evident in the fact that he didn't see the signals and also that he allowed the train to overspeed briefly, that 62 and a 60, which is definitely speeding. There's no um, 10% plus three or whatever the, the rule of thumb is for the uh, the road network. It's 62 and a 60 is just speeding with the train. Why wasn't he focused properly on the task at hand? A process of elimination, well, that discounted some of the usual suspects. Phone records were pulled and checked, so the driver was not using his phone. Witness evidence says he wasn't distracted by other people in the cab or someone down on the tracks or events within the saloon. Post-incident tests found no evidence that the driver was affected by drugs or alcohol. Of all the usual suspects for distraction, one remained, and it's one that wasn't unknown to the industry in the slightest. Fatigue. Fatigue, understandably, increases the likelihood of errors and adversely affects performance. It's an issue that the industry is constantly, constantly trying to respond to in the battle against accidents and a cause which often crops up in these accident reports. It's not the first time I'll say the word, it's not the last time I'm going to say it either. While speaking to the investigators, the driver divulged that for many years he had consistently suffered from poor quality sleep. He wasn't waking up feeling rested, he was waking up knackered. He'd had about seven hours sleep the night before the incident, but he stressed that this sleep was broken, as it typically was for him, and he didn't feel refreshed during the early part of the day before leaving for work. He went on to say that he was starting to feel tired when he arrived at Aylesbury, just about 8pm, but he didn't feel too tired to drive safely at that time. Just felt tired. By this point, he'd been awake for around 13 and a half hours, and when his train passed the stop signal, he'd been awake for around 15 hours. If you look at the Office of Rail and Roads Guidance for Managing Fatigue, this states that being awake for 17 hours has been found to produce impairment on a range of tasks equivalent to that associated with a blood alcohol concentration. Try and get that properly. A blood alcohol concentration above the drink driving limit for most of Europe. So the driver in this case had only been awake for 15 hours, but the poor quality of the rest he received the night before probably meant his performance was nevertheless adversely affected by fatigue. Knowing that fatigue played a role on this day, investigators dug further into the idea of it. Speaking to the driver, they found out he had not slept well for many years and believed this was due to ageing. Many years of shift work and, well, his level of physical fitness. Just getting older. We've all been there with something. Following the accident, though, this sleep issue was investigated further medically, and this in turn highlighted that the driver was suffering from obstructive sleep apnea. It's a condition. It causes your breathing to stop and start while you're sleeping. It can result in the sufferer waking up a lot and sometimes results in people feeling very tired, unable to concentrate during the day. This does sound like exactly the kind of issue you might not want a train driver to be unaware that they have. 
It clearly appears to have an impact on the concentration of the driver in this circumstance, but it wasn't the only medical issue which came to light as part of the investigation. In December of 2019, following a routine GP appointment, the driver was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and in January 2020 started taking prescribed medication to treat this condition. Outside of the context of work, it's probably a fairly routine event in the life of people of a certain age or lifestyle. People get diabetes. But when we look at the work this man did and the complications diabetes can cause, then it gets more complex. We need to revisit another document here. Chilton Railways had a professional driving policy, which they issued to all train drivers. This is a guidebook that said, um, (laughs) welcome to Chilton, this is how we do things here. Lots of rules that needed following, processes that needed to be followed in a certain way. The policy required a driver to report to their manager or control if they believe that their fitness to work could be affected. And it also requires its drivers to report any prescribed medication that they're taking that could affect their performance. So an assessment could be undertaken by the healthcare provider the company used to determine whether it would affect his ability to safely drive a train. So did our driver undertake either of these required activities? He did not. He stated that he did not report the diabetes diagnosis because he believed it didn't affect his fitness to drive trains. This, in turn, was because his GP had not advised him to tell his employer, and based on the driver's personal experience where a diabetic family member was still able to drive a car without restriction. Maybe not the best comparison, considering the relative responsiveness and responsibility of driving your own one-and-a-half-ton Corsa to driving four carriages of... anyway. But there you go. In terms of the new meds, well, the driver was aware of this reporting requirement, but had not formally reported taking the medication prescribed for diabetes. He stated it was because he'd not been warned about any performance-related side effects of the medication by his GP and he'd suffered no side effects when starting the medication. As it happens, after the incident at Chalfont and Latimer Chilton Railways provided details of his medication to their healthcare provider, it was assessed and the provider advised, not a problem, no associated restriction for train driving. But following the process should have seen that ascertained at a much earlier stage, somewhere between the point of him starting taking it and the next time he drove a train. The actual condition of diabetes, though, that might have had an impact on the situation, and the company should have been afforded an opportunity by the driver to actually assess that. Type 2 diabetes symptoms include tiredness and needing to urinate more frequently, particularly at night. It then follows that the onset of diabetes might have worsened the poor quality of sleep already affecting the driver due to his sleep apnea. Less and worse quality sleep leads to more fatigue, more fatigue to more errors. Well, all of this unpicked, reports examined, health assessed, fatigue was laid out as the primary reason that this near miss had taken place. As with every accident or incident requiring a full investigation, recommendations were forthcoming from the RAIB. Chalfont and Latimer brought three such recommendations, one directed slowly at Chilton and the other two at Chilton and LUL jointly. 
The first was that Chiltern Railway should review its driver management processes and introduce improved processes based on the findings of that review. In order to prevent further incidents, this review was going to need to be fairly wide-ranging. They would need to cover the training provision to drivers on trip cocks, identification of issues such as sleep apnea during medicals, adoption of the Office of Rail and Roads Fatigue Guidance as part of the roster design, promotion of good working relationships with management teams and resourcing, training and ongoing support for those managing drivers. There was also an element of review needed into how drivers were assessed. The first joint recommendation was that Chilton and LUL should jointly establish an effective process for the management of safety at the interfaces between their respective operations. This should include further assessment of the risk associated with the operation of Chilton Railways trains on London Underground Limited's infrastructure and the implementation of any further risk controls deemed necessary. Fairly self-explanatory, an incident had occurred. It was a serious one, so it was important to ensure that everything that could be done to prevent things like that happening were being done. There were clearly holes in the process, things that would have, could have been done differently to prevent this. Go away, find other problems, fix them, make it safer. The baseline recommendation you'd expect from any accident report, make it better. The final recommendation was intended to prevent the circumvention of the Tripcock safety system and This recommendation was that Chilton Railways and LUL should jointly review the design of train protection equipment with the objective of reducing the risk associated with the resetting of train protection equipment after an activation due to a SPAD signal passed at danger on London Underground Limited infrastructure. The recommendation was intended to identify ways of discouraging the immediate resetting of the train protection equipment following its activation, a resetting go exactly what happened here how do you discourage oh that stopped my train right fair enough i'll uh i'll get going again if a system had physically prevented or introduced additional checks which needed to happen chalfont and latimer could not have taken place additionally this recommendation included the need for limiting the speed of train movements after the equipment's been activated and also ways of minimising unnecessary brake activations on non-LUL lines. So those spurious activations I was talking about, if they're not happening as frequently, when they happen, you start to worry more about why. If you go onto the RAIB's website, there's a document on the page for this accident, which uh, updates on the recommendations and the progress that's being made. Every accident has it, and you can go and you can look and you can see Well, they recommended that this has happened. As of this evening, the document on the RAIB website for the Chalfont and Latimer near Miss doesn't have any updates to the progress. And I know if you look through the the news articles, um, Children has done things like hire more managers. They've restructured it a bit to try and make the, the spread workload more manageable but they haven't reported it back to the RIB as a, as a response to the recommendation, so I'm not going to tell you it in that way. Um, but it's good for you to know that you can go and you can look and you can see formally what the response is to the RIB. Anyway, like I said, the branch appears to still be waiting for a formal response to those recommendations. 
I often worry about the idea of covering non-disasters on this podcast. It's definitely a little out of the usual, especially when the podcast is subtitled Railway Disasters in the UK. But I've always set my litmus test as for whether or not I can cover an accident, being does it have an REIB report or the equivalent basis for what was being used at the time the accident was occurring. Chalfont and Latimer does, and its very catchy title is Signal passed at danger and subsequent near-miss Chalfont and Latimer station. Near-misses are important. In fact, in some ways, I feel as though they're often more important than the actual accidents because they show you how bad something could have been without the horrors of them actually having to happen. And they give you opportunities to catch that fault now before it kills somebody. With a proactive and healthy safety culture, near-misses are treated as seriously as actual accidents. If you go back a length of time, which I'm sure is a lot shorter than anybody would care to admit, near misses have been more or less just swept under the carpet. Unfortunately, I'm not naive enough to doubt that some of them probably still are. But none of these will be anywhere near as large-scale or undeniable as this one was. In my own mind, the stories of near misses need telling in formats like this. And if you search for this incident on Google, apart from a couple of specialised industry articles and the RIB reports, etc., The events portrayed in the media with headlines like Tired Chiltern Railways Chain Driver Narrowly Avoided Head-On Crash and Train Almost Smashed Into Tube After Tired Driver Passed Red Light at 60 Mile An Hour. These are fairly dramatic headlines, which I'm sure aren't written to drive clicks and ad revenue or anything like that. But they're followed up then by 500-word articles with a little bit of detail, but that don't really seem to impart the significance of what took place. And my personal interpretation of that is the headline grabs you and thinks, oh God, what happened? And makes you worry. And then the article content almost sort of downplays what happened. And I suppose that's kind of the way, almost anticlimactic, but that is modern um, <laughs> modern news journalism, um, website-driven Facebook links, Twitter posts, etc., etc. But these 500-word articles, they don't give you anything like the detail that you want in the how and why. So by comparison, by the time I reach this line in the script for today's episode, I'm up to 8,184 words. Um, The official report is actually 19,955 words. And yeah, that's a hard read and at times incredibly technical and jargony, but it's not the right form, I think, for general consumption. It's, It's good for someone like me who just buries their head in it and then translate into something else but i think mediums like this podcast need to exist to provide that middle ground and to 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 make it clear near misses are bad this is bad this was serious this is why it was serious and this is what it fixes going forwards but anyway i've definitely rambled i've added about 50 words that weren't in the script in that bit um but my point is if i can try and drag one out of there is that if we're going to tell the stories of accidents that take place on the railway. That, for me, needs that we need to tell stories of near misses as well. So I hope I've managed to do that for you with this one today. If you ever need to impart on anybody the importance of learning from near misses, just tell them this. Every single accident that I will ever cover in this podcast is only one small change in the story one alteration in the narrative away from just being an EMS. From episode one, 
way, way back when we visited Great Heck to our most recent episode two weeks ago looking at Colwich Junction. A car leaving the road a few minutes later or brakes stopping a train a few seconds later and locations on the line get to live on in obscurity and people, well, they just get to live. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of Season 2 of Signals to Danger. Once again, I always say it, but it really does help. Please like, share, review, and come talk to me on social media. Twitter or Facebook, Signals to Danger is on there. On Twitter, I'm on there myself as at Daniel Fox Rail as well. And if you do want to support the podcast, come over to signalsdanger.com and look at the support or the shop pages. If you do, if you support us, um, as a general helping hand patron, you'll get to watch videos of me saying <laughs> occasional naughty words like I did tonight. I got my first swearing because I did something wrong. Um, and if you join on the live stream tier, you get to see me doing it live like some people are now who I'm waving to. Um, and they'll get to hear the swearing before I can edit it out. Anyway, thank you so much more than, as I always say, for spending some time with me. And until the next episode... Travel safe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.